got the the rise of I guess you could call it social finance of and this is you know this is in a lot of industries right now you got the the influencer trends or the youtuber trends and you find that many younger consumers are getting most of their financial advice from finance influencers from people doing youtube videos or people on tiktok and i don't want to say that all of this information all of this information this like this democratization of financial information is a bad thing i think a lot of it probably is good advice even if it's not coming from what the figures we would traditionally think of as as experts but at the end of the day, it, it does disintermediate the relationship between between the bank or the trusted financial advisor or the you know the family tax planner and a, and a younger consumer. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Banking on Disruption. I'm Fred Cavena. Today, we are joined by my friend Wyatt Litch a thought leader and frequent speaker on banking technology, especially as it relates to attracting millennial and Gen Z customers and the impact of generational differences on customer expectations. Wyatt shares his recommended strategies for banks to attract and serve younger, tech-savvy customers effectively. After the interview and our quick take segment, Josh, Eric, and I explore if 2023 marks the end of the cushy tech job what it means now that we've learned that Google's Gemini demo video was at least somewhat faked, and how and why now is the time for banks to embrace radical change. While you're listening to this podcast, why not take a moment to follow us on LinkedIn at the Banking on Disruption podcast and on Instagram at at Banking on Disruption. Now sit back and strap in because our show is coming to you right now. And welcome back. On this episode, I'm excited to welcome my good friend, Wyatt Litt. Wyatt discovered his passion for financial technology in college after being introduced to crowdfunding. He since focused his energy on trying to marry traditional financial services with innovation as a strategic partner manager, solution consultant, and sales executive in the banking and mortgage industry. Currently, he is the most interested in generational trends and how users interact with their finances and the opportunity to create personalized services for specific demographics. I think the reason I initially reached out, Wyatt, to have you on the podcast was because of a presentation that you you gave earlier this year, specifically around how banks can attract younger depositors. So I, I definitely want to get in on that conversation. I, I also should mention that similar to me, you're also a big scuba diver. So maybe we'll have time to get into that towards the end of the conversation. But welcome to the podcast, Wyatt. Glad you could make it. Thank you, Fred. It's really great to be here and, and great to catch up with you. Thanks for having me on. You bet. I mean, why don't we start out there? You know, I think that right now, probably most banks would be happy to get any deposits. You know, certainly the lower cost, the better. But, you know, obviously just thinking about both long-term growth and, and also just, you know, retaining assets during, you know, what is going to be a big generational wealth transfer. I know a lot of the banks that I talk to think a lot about how do we build better relationships, attract, you know, younger customers to begin with, and then build better relationships with them, you know, during, you know, during those early years. So uh, I'll just kick it off that way. Like, how, how do you talk to banks about attracting those younger depositors? Yeah, that's, I'm, I'm glad we're starting here because I think this to me is 
probably the single greatest macro trend facing the banking industry right now. There's a lot of other things that are theoretically going to be more short-lived, you know, a lot of risk built up in the commercial real estate space, for example, but we'll get through that. But in a, a total shift in the population and where the population is keeping and interacting with their money is not is not a blip and not a not a cyclical factor. And banks right now are are getting hit with that from both sides. In the in the first case, their customers are aging. I work with primarily community and regional banks. They have a presence in one state, maybe the surrounding states, and they could be anywhere from a billion to ten billion in assets. And and that segment of banks have an older customer base than any of their peers. And their peers are their peers are their up or their upmarket competitors. So larger national banks or even credit unions of a similar size tend to have a younger a younger customer footprint. Now these customers are great for these banks now because they've been incredibly loyal. They know the they know the folks in the branches and we I don't want to diminish the value of those personal relationships, but as a as a banking leader, I think that it's important that you all that they also acknowledge the incredible risk that's represented by this aging population. Because they many of them stop earning regular income. They stop they stop earning regular income. They start to pay off major debts in their homes. And then as you alluded to, the the huge generational transfer of wealth that's set to occur in in the coming years. You know, some economists estimating this could be anywhere from sixty to one hundred and twenty trillion dollars that will that will change hands from the silent generation and the boomer generation directly to their descendants. Now, what's interesting about this in the context of the community banking is community banks have not done a great job at capturing the business of those people's children. So at at the same as they are losing deposits from their existing strongholds, they're also failing to capture the recipients of those deposits. So people from millennials to Gen Z and, and soon to be Gen Alpha, those customers are increasingly opening accounts with neobanks, with fintechs, and other digital challengers. So you think so about why, why is that? Why 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 is there, you know, more attraction by those demographic groups to neobanks and other challengers than the the more traditional banks? I would say the most obvious is the advent of mobile banking. Most younger consumers today are going to prefer to interact with their finances on their phone. Or if not their phone, then on a desktop computer. And especially in community banking, many of them are still behind just on having a, an online presence that, that's accessible through the web, let alone something that's convenient and in, engaging to use on a phone. Well, any, any other factors that you think are top of mind beyond the, the digital banking access? Yeah, there's been a, a great breakup of the consumer's financial life where a bank used to you know maybe serve every aspect or close to every aspect of your financial life. You had your checking account there, your savings account. You had someone to give you advice with budgeting. You had someone to offer you a student loan. And those services would grow with you over time. So you know you might open up your first savings account as a, little, as a very young child when you get your first birthday money. And at, at every new phase of your life and of your, the evolution of your financial needs, the bank was there to offer something new. If you look at that same journey for today's Today's high school graduate, they've probably already, you know, maybe they still had that anchor savings account or the, 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 the checking account where they got their debit card to start paying for gas, but sprinkled along throughout there, maybe they've probably, they're probably spending a lot more time on Coinbase trading Bitcoin or, or Robinhood or using the likes of mint.com or Credit Karma, or maybe not, that's, maybe that's not the case for, for high school students, but for, for young adults. 
So now they're being pulled in many directions by these these different financial services providers. And each of those has, you know, is competing with the banks for for eyeballs, for relationship time, for trust. And then on top of that, you've got the the rise of, I guess you could call it social finance. Of, and this is, you know, this is in a lot of industries right now. You got the the influencer trends or the YouTuber trends. And you find that many younger consumers are getting most of their financial advice from finance influencers, from people doing YouTube videos or people on TikTok. And I don't want to say that all of this information, all of this information, this act, like this democratization of financial information is a bad thing. I think a lot of it probably is good advice, even if it's not coming from what the figures we would traditionally think of as as experts. But at the end of the day, it, it does disintermediate the relationship between between the bank or the trusted financial advisor or the you know the family tax planner and a, and a younger consumer. So I think you've done a great job of framing some of the challenges. What are what are some of the solutions? Well, I think first and foremost, and I'm going to sound like I'm beating a dead horse here at some point, but it, it's bringing banking online into the cloud and onto mobile. For for most folks in you know my demographic, I'm kind of on that borderline between millennial and Gen Z. The idea of going into a bank branch on a regular basis just to perform the daily tasks, I might do pulling out cash, things like that. I, mean, I don't even pull out cash, so that's just a that's just a non that's a non-starter for me. And I think once you've you know, once you've opened the opened the door to to being on mobile, then then the the world is almost. I want to say the, I don't want to say the world's your oyster because these are big complex problems, oftentimes or complex projects rather, oftentimes. But there's so many things that banks can do to access the world of fintech. It's not always an us first them when it comes to fintechs. There's many kinds of partnerships that that banks can seek out that can allow them to differentiate themselves or take a lot of services that their potential younger customers are already interacting with and integrated them in a thoughtful way so that they're accessible through a single point of access. And the benefit to the consumer there is not only a single point of access through, but it's a single point of access with, you know, a trusted regulated body where, you know, you can call and get some good advice or where, you know, that they can't just cut and run or, you know, be acquired overnight and take, and take your money with them. So I, I think that, uh, it shouldn't be underestimated the value that that the stability of the traditional banking space can bring to kind of aggregating the the host of fintech services that are out there. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. You know, go back to your first point, and and again, I don't necessarily pay as close attention to you know digital banking, mobile banking offerings. I think on a day to day basis as you do, but I I, I guess my experience has been less with banks that don't have an offering at all and more with banks that have an offering that is is left wanting you know they they have online they've got a mobile app it's just it's you know not very feature rich you know are you are you seeing more of the latter of of banks that really don't have you know any any digital offering at all or are you are you really more concerned with mobile experiences and online experiences that don't measure up I think I think you'll see a little a little of both, and in my experience, um, there's been a great discrepancy in in that uh, length of or uh, amount of progress in the digital experience. Or let me let me restate that. Let's say in my experience, there's been a great difference in the amount of progress depending on the market segment, depending on even some geographic factors like the part of the country. But I think I think what you're saying is is true. It's not that there's zero mobile offering. But for a lot of the banks that I work with, they've they put some mobile offering in place and it's 
either so bad from an experience experience standpoint, or it's opened them up to so much fraud risk because they've you know basically given given the entire globe a, a window into how to try and do business with them without thinking <laughs> about having some kind of automatic screening that they've either they've either shut those those online offerings down completely or they've buried them so effectively in their website that it's not actually you know ser- it's not actually giving them an opportunity to serve to serve their customers and I, I think there's a little bit of a, a chicken or the egg component to to this uh, for these banks in the decision making they're like well I put this online offering in place and it didn't give me any of the benefits that going online was, was supposed to offer me in terms of organic customer growth or deposit acquisition. It's actually cost me a lot of money because I've introduced all of this fraud and the operational burden that comes with screening that fraud. And so it's then hard to hard to take that project and take it to the board and say, we need to invest more in this because it's not, it's not those, those investment dollars aren't, aren't going to, you know, those investment dollars spent on kind of, trying to promote the same product aren't going to produce a better result. A lot of that has to do with, you know, a platform that really thoughtfully manages the fraud component automatically, you know, using the AI options that are available in the market today or taking your product taking your product offering and making sure that it encompasses the the products that are really interesting to the consumer today. And that's been really tough in this in this rate environment because things have changed so fast. Yeah, I was in I was in the digital mortgage technology space right at the beginning of 2020, and there was this flood of putting mortgage applications online or or really at that point enhancing existing mortgage experiences to deal with the influx of of buyers. Well, now all those investments are are seeming like they were uh, a little too late because the environment switched completely to deposit acquisition, and now folks are realizing that their technology is lagging behind in that space. So yeah, it's a it's a moving it's a moving target. I mean, it always is a moving target. I, I would be very curious. You know, I think that you know the the theoretical conversation about like going back to the board and having to talk about not getting the ROI, not getting organic deposit growth. I mean, I don't know that I believe today. Anyway, maybe maybe ten years ago, fifteen years ago, you know, bankers went in with the we're investing to be ahead. I think today it's it's table stakes. It's like a hundred years ago, you, you didn't build a branch because you wanted to, you know, have organic growth. You built a branch because you needed a place for people to transact. I think that you know the equivalent today is is a mobile and a and a digital presence. I, I I can't imagine that there's a lot of bankers out there that are are using it as a differentiator as much as this is this is just the table stakes we need to to stay competitive. Yeah, I think I think that's probably really fair. And if you think of the mobile app like the branch, it's just a way to transact or just like a channel to distribute your services. And maybe there's right. an element there of finding out what that thing is that makes you unique. It's not going to be the technology, but you have to t- have the technology in place if you're to educate people about what does make you unique. A lot of mm-hmm. these smaller like regional banks that I work with have incredibly competitive CD rates, for example, much better than you'll mm-hmm. get at any at any national at any national bank. Uh, totally. And those kinds of products are nationally marketable. No one, you know, if you can make it so that someone doesn't have to come into a branch to to open a, a CD with you, and your CD rate is you know 100 basis points higher than than Chase or or Wells Fargo, and you get the mobile app in place, like. We can take this. We can take this show on the road in a really scalable manner, and that can be an incredibly profitable 
like a like an incredibly effective way of, of gaining new deposits. But most most of these don't even most of these folks don't even have have the tools or, or have the operational capabilities that if they were to launch a national or a regional marketing campaign that they could keep up with the influx of business. Well, that that's a whole you're you're talking more from a middle, a middle and back office perspective. Both. Um, say they they don't a they don't have the means right now to distribute that product to a broader geographic area, or even if they were to somehow d- distribute that product to a broader geographic area, they couldn't fulfill on it in a in a way that would produce a, a quality customer experience. Makes sense. So what what's the answer then? What's the what's the easy button to get them from where they are today to being able to take advantage of of all of this potential scale? Well, I'm not here to talk my own book on my employer right now, but it's funny that you said easy button because we have a whole talk track around being the easy button for banks in digital in digital transformation. I think first and for, first and foremost, banks need to broaden their especially smaller banks need to broaden their horizon, get out of just being stuck in sort of the ecosystem of technology providers from or excuse me, technology tools that are provided by their core banking system. So having a having a front end that's more than just a web form and then making sure that the data that's being brought in through whatever externally facing interface you have is actually something you can act on. Like if it's just landing in a spreadsheet, then you're still back to you're still back to fulfilling that manually. You've just digitized a a paper process. So thinking about having platforms in place that allow for automation, that allow for easy integration to additional tools. I've mentioned the fraud component already, but being able to automatic automate low value tasks like initiating a credit poll or initiating a credit poll or you know pulling a flood certification i guess these are more lending focused but think about turning people into into uh, customer service representatives as opposed to someone who pushes a button every time a file crosses their desk i think that makes a lot of sense so assuming that the technology is in place let's talk a little bit about the product side you know, you mentioned already some of the banks that you work with have really competitive rates in in CDs. CDs are a very, you know, traditional banking product. I think one of the things that we see a lot from a fintech perspective is, you know, an evolution on on banking products and kind of a, a new way of packaging, you know, both deposit and loan offerings. What should banks be thinking about if they're looking to attract younger customers, younger depositors from a product development standpoint? Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting question. And I think we're going to see more and more, more and more creativity in this area. So people are going to come up with better ideas than I have for now, at least. But I can talk about a few that I've, that I've seen in the market. So, and it's not always just about the financial product. I think there's like a big packaging component to this as well. Something mm-hmm. that comes to mind immediately is the the digital family wallet and Giving, so I guess maybe let me back up. Previously, you might have had you know your your children's savings account or your college students' checking account, and a lot of a lot of banks have these products. And I think in most cases they were kind of loss leaders, and they were just considered something you had to have in place in order to hopefully capture you know a, a young person's business and make them a customer for life. I think the next iteration of that are much more value added services that can serve the purpose of creating customer loyalty, but also but also be something that are are useful enough and have enough utility that you can charge higher fees for them and they can actually be something that, that becomes profitable. 
digital family wallets are a great example of this because they appeal to children. They appeal to parents with children. They allow you to diversify your the product set with with a with the parents. So not only are you more likely to get the kids business later on, you're more likely to retain the parents business long term. And when people see the how useful these tools are, how much they how they make it easier to pay out for chores, to help with allowances, to teach their kids about responsible finance, they don't feel as strange about paying a fee a fee for those services. And I think there's a lot of examples. Traditional well, I, I think I think maybe a lot of our listeners aren't familiar with the digital family wallet concept. So can you talk a little bit about what that product is? Yeah, absolutely. So essentially if anyone's used Apple Pay or another personal digital wallet, this is the the concept is to extend the capabilities of that tool. So you're managing multiple multiple people within that wallet. Most of the family of the family tailored wallets uh, will also have components for tracking a dependence, or I guess tracking your children's spending, managing transfer of, of money between family members. So you can kind of think of like displacing Venmo or keeping that Venmo peer-to-peer payments aspect housed within a single interface. And then uh, most also include some kind of uh, financial education components. And some are even adding automated savings accounts or the ability to just bucket different accounts to teach children about budgeting um, and managing, you know, money for different aspects of their lives or different or different goals. So I'm very curious, and and my son now is is 19. I'm trying to get him off the payroll, but uh, you know what? How do, how does that work? Like effectively day to day in making sure that you know kids aren't necessarily you know spending beyond limits or kind of taking advantage of of the. The, the broader family asset base, maybe put it that way. Yeah, most of these wallets will have tools in place where you can create preset spending limits mm-hmm. and alerts and monitoring. So if your son sudden, suddenly goes way over his weekly gas budget, you're going to get a <laughs> notification to your phone and you can you can put out a phone call right away. As opposed to previously, you know, so you had a handful of kids and you, you may not notice until the next statement comes around that one of the credit cards is way that one of the credit cards is way over where it should be. So it's a lot more real time feedback in most of these, in most of these applications. No, that's great. What, what other strategies have you seen work? I think uh, another interesting approach or maybe a set of many approaches is just being really empathetic to the needs customers of different, of different demographics or of different backgrounds and developing niche services specifically to suit them and being really tailored and personalized in the way that you then market to those demographics. So we've worked with customers who are spinning up separate separate digitally based brands to serve mm-hmm. high debt, high income individuals, primarily medical professionals. And this is I think an, another example of of an iteration of an iteration of a traditional finance approach just amplified through technology. Uh, it was not uncommon already for you know banks to have special loan home loan offerings for medical professionals whose debt to income ratio is a lot different than you know your typical your typical consumer. Well, now instead of just having a single loan product or a, or a set of a couple loan products, we might have an entire brand with loan products and deposit offerings and maybe even small business account offerings tied into that for someone who say owns their own dental practice. And I think we're going to see more and more brands, even probably some mini brands owned by 
single entities that target different that target different segments like that. And those niche offerings may not be as big as entire brands. I think there are you know unique finance problems that were hard to address at scale before. An example that comes to mind is a company called uh, Support Pay. And Support mm-hmm. Pay started out as a, a payments platform designed for divorced parents who were managing who were managing finances and expenses between you know for for their children that they had shared custody of. Seemingly a really u- narrow and unique use case, but actually we know that there's a lot of divorces that happen around the country, and and so there should be specific products to design that. Now, Support Pay is going into now expanding into helping families manage joint payments for children who are splitting the care of elderly grandparents. That is a, I think a a great natural progression of their product and speaks to the fact that speaks to the fact that, you know, given, given the time and attention, there's many diverse services that are going to attract, going to attract some individuals to one bank versus another. So it, it sounds like it's important for a bank to try to figure out where their particular strengths are, where they could potentially build a niche, whether or not it's part of their their core brand or if they spin up a, a separate brand to, to maybe focus in on that niche. That should be part of a bank strategy to diversify and, and grow their deposit base. I, I absolutely think so. I think with the the pace technological change to try and be all things to all people in in the banking industry today unless you know unless you've got chase style budget and your own startup accelerator is going to be a very <laughs> a very tough a very tough and expensive undertaking absolutely so one, one of the things you mentioned in your your prior answer prior to that was rolling in i think the example you used was for a dental practitioner rolling in some traditional business banking products in to more of a personal relationship. And I, I wonder, you know, in general, when looking to attract a younger deposit base, you know, how important is it to have business oriented offerings, flexible business oriented offerings? You know, I don't know how prevalent it is, but we I hear a lot, I'm sure you do too, about you know, side hustles and side gigs and and people doing, you know, gig work and, and other stuff that might necessitate some type of of more than a personal banking relationship. I think probably a lot of that data or a lot of that transactional volume has moved to, you know, some of the non-traditional apps like uh like Venmo and and Cash App and that sort of thing. And and is there room and is it important for a bank to try to go after some of that volume if they want to 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 really attract those younger depositors? Yeah, I I think it would be impossible to say that it's not important. I just don't feel like I'm in a place to have an answer for how they do that. So I'll use a little bit of a personal anecdote here. You know, I, I manage a couple rental properties. And so I do, I have at, at a couple points, you know, done some reading and tried to decide if I need to have a business account or a personal account. And I've always ended up landing on personal account just because I, I haven't seen a way to justify the fees. Now, I'm one of you know many many people in my generation who are going to like you said on this side on this side hustle journey, and the data tells us that that number is only going up and going up at a rapid clip. Actually, ever since the pandemic, we've normalized at a rate of new business formation that's almost double what was consider- considered the prior the norm prior to that for about five to ten years. 
So I think finding a way to become sticky with this, you know, very entrepreneurial generation could be a huge differentiator. I'm just, I'm not sure what that is. And I think back to well, my, my let, use case that I know well. Go, go say, let, let me just ask you, back to your use case, you, you've obviously looked at it. I, I, you know, we're, we're not here to be a, a personal finance advice show. But, you know, I've got I've got business interests as well. And and my tax advisors, you know, and always encourage me strongly to keep my financial accounts separate and, you know, legal entities with their own accounts. And, and I'm, I'm no stranger to the fact that sometimes that can can be costly from a fee perspective. So like what what would it take for a bank to capture your business for you to say, I'm going to take. Wyatt Holdings LLC for out of my personal account and and start running it out of a of a business account. Yeah, I mean that that's an easy that's an easy question answer me or question for me to answer. Automation around billing and tracking my expenses mm-hmm. would be completely game changing. I mean the thing about a side hustle is you don't want it to completely take over your personal life. But the amount of hours that I spend tracking transactions and making sure that bills are getting paid for one property versus another out of the right account. It doesn't feel like a side hustle a lot of the, a lot of the time. It feels like a second job. Um, and feels like a yeah, front if hustle. I could get my banks to, <laughs> exactly, yeah, exactly. If I could get my bank to spit out a, a report that I that I, I mean, imagine if I even had some control over the format of that report, it'd save me hours a month and I would and I would pay fees for that. So for you it's not necessarily a race to the bottom to eliminate fees. It really is a, am I getting the value for the fees that when I look around the market, everybody seems to be charging? Oh, absolutely. I would, I would say, if anything, yeah, I would say it's a race to the top on fees. How valuable can, can a bank be to its customer to justify those fees? And I think that the trend, and I don't have a data point off the top of my head to support this, but I think that the trend would be towards people who are willing to pay for, for those value-added services. I mean, for my... I think like for my cleaning woman who cleans at my Airbnb, I schedule that through an app. And I was very hesitant mm-hmm. at first because I think they, they charge, I want to say 10 or 15%. But as soon as she got me to try it and I realized I no longer had to do any scheduling, I didn't have to like reconcile to make sure I'd paid her for everything at the end of the month. I like, I now I'm, I'm saying, charge me more. I'm, I'm happy to pay. <laughs> you are, you are sold. You are willing to pay that additional fee to get back that additional time. Oh, absolutely. No, I think I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think, you know, a lot of what you're saying about what what banks can do to to bridge that gap, I think that I think the answer is right there. I think the other thing is to make it easier for someone to not have to juggle a lot of different, you know, logins, a lot of different, you know, experiences to be able to go between you know, if, if you really want to capture my, my full relationship, don't make it hard for me to, to do business, you know, with you, you know, yeah. make it make, give me a, a one-stop shop. Let me move easily between, you know, my, my various accounts and, and kind of understand the whole picture. I want to put you on the spot a little bit, because one of the things you mentioned early on when we talked was, you know, you, your, your idea of going into a branch is you know it's kind of an anathema to you. You don't want to you don't want to go to a branch. You don't really pull out cash. Is is the branch dead? Like you know, looking forward, fifteen years, twenty years, thirty years. You know, are are branches irrelevant? 
Or do you think that, you know, younger bank customers today will adopt branches and and find uses for branches more and more as they get older? Or do you think banks can evolve branches in a way that makes them relevant again? It's hard to for me to imagine that specifically for consumer banking that br- that branches will ever serve the same purpose that they that they did again. I don't think that cash is going to become any more popular over time and I don't think that like coming into a place and being told that you don't actually have the right paperwork to get done what you need to do is 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 going to is going to continue to is going to continue to delight people, people who increasingly don't own printers. But I do know that most surveys, you know, millennials or younger, will typically say that we don't want to come into a branch on a regular basis and we're happy to do a lot of research and become financially educated on online. But that when it comes to making important financial decisions, we as a generation really do value the the advice of a trusted of a trusted professional. Now, granted, that's like a lot of people my age and older you know, remember their parents losing the house, like remember the, the 2008 financial crash. So that was a big thing when I was working in the mortgage space. It's like people still want to sit down face to face and feel like they're getting advice from someone they can trust. I do think that the branch as a means of forming those relationships may also may also change. I think the way we've we saw like a brief spike in the in the prevalence of telemedicine. And I think that's, you know, continuing to trend upwards at a slower rate. I think we'll see, we might see similar trends in the banking space. I, I do, I also think though that the the branch for business banking has or could have a very bright future for those that are willing to to capitalize on it. I already mentioned like that, that, that spike in new business formation that we're continuing to see it at, to play out at a higher dorm. Well, a lot of these businesses are being formed remotely and they're carried out completely online. And I think that um, aspiring entrepreneurs would value, say, having a meeting space that they could rent out and their their bank branch could serve as an excellent resource for, you know, entertaining investors, for holding a hosting a video conference if they are typically working, you know, at home with kids around or in a small apartment with roommates as they form their, you know, digital consultancy or their 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 shoe collector shoe trading business, whatever that whatever that thing may be. <laughs> And then I also think that we'll see more of kind of this is this is less new, but bank branches include coffee shops and other like leisure experiences that just attract people as a as a way to to relax there. Actually, I spoke with a, a bank recently that purposely attached their newest branch to a chiropractor's office, and it's increased foot traffic in the branch dramatically because people are stopping by the branch after they get their back cracked, and it's the and the chiropractor is like a a major customer of theirs. So I think more and more, maybe not obvious, but synergistic partnerships like that will probably pop up. Well, I, I will say that you know, now now I've got a chiropractor subscription from one of the, the national chains. But when I, when I used to see a more traditional chiropractor, I probably needed to go to the bank ahead of time just to get a loan to, to pay the, <laughs> the chiropractor <laughs> fees. But uh, no, I, I like that. I, I, I will say, I think the the coffee shop idea has jumped the shark. Like there's a few that do it well. I don't know that we need a bunch of dated environments with less than great coffee that you have to stop into. But I, I like the idea of creative combinations. And I love that, you know, being a a hub for for startups or for small businesses, being kind of a stopgap between like a full 
you know, co-working, but, you know, a place where you could drop in on a desk or, you know, rent a conference room and, and then also have some value-add services. Like, I think that that all is really exciting. So I think those are some good ideas. I, I don't think personally that the branch is dead. I think it's going to evolve. I think, you know, you're right. You know, I remember as a kid, my parents would go to the bank weekly and stand in a in a 20 minute line to, you know, cash a check mm-hmm. or get some cash or, you know, whatever, whatever the, the transaction of the day, make, make the mortgage payment, you know, in person, you know, kind of a thing. I think I think those days are long behind us, but I, I do have a lot of confidence that brand, that banks are going to find their own ways to evolve that that space and make it relevant for the way people are transacting business today. So we'll see. I, I think those are all good ideas. I appreciate the time today, but one, one last question I want to ask is, you know, we've talked a lot about the importance of technology, the importance of making sure the experience is is there. What would be your one key takeaway, your one piece of advice for a bank that knows they're in a position where their technology, especially their consumer-facing technology, is not keeping up, and they know that that they're looking to innovate? What's your what's your key piece of advice for them? Oh, my one piece of advice. I think where I see this most successful is when executives are championing championing these initiatives or the sets of initiatives from the top down. Um, and there's, you know, a, a very much a leadership level commitment to innovation, whether or not that means like installing a chief technology officer or a chief, chief innovation officer, or it's just, you know, happens to be a CEO that that is very passionate about this. People need to show up to work every day and know that that is something that the bank is investing in. And having that commitment from leadership will, of course, impact the way budgets are set, have a great impact on culture. And, you know, that should be also be reflected in, in KPIs and expectations for, for every level of staff down in, in a way that's most sensible to their role. Yeah, I think that's a great piece of advice. I think you, you definitely can never underscore the importance of executive leadership, executive, you know, modeling of the change and really kind of putting your, your, your actions, you know, where your words are by investing in, in top talent to lead those initiatives. I think that's fantastic. Well, White, really appreciate the conversation today. Uh, I know this is a uber exciting uh, and interesting topic for banks, especially as as we're in a bit of a, a deposit crunch, if you will. If banks are interested in reaching out, learning more, what's the best way for them to reach you? Yeah, I'm very active on LinkedIn. Uh, my last name is spelled L-I-C-H-T. Find me, Wyatt Licht, on LinkedIn. I also write a blog that I post on Medium at backslash Wyatt Steele, S-T-E-E-L-E. That's my middle name. Other than that, I'm constantly on the conference circuit. So if you're a, if you're a banker and you are at any banking convention, <laughs> but from <laughs> east to west coast, there's a good chance you could bump you could bump into me there. You you have any coming up between now and the end of the year? I will be in Atlanta in about a week for the Georgia Bankers Tech Talk. So it should be a great crowd and looking forward to checking out the new Community Banking Association headquarters in Atlanta as well that they've just opened. That sounds fantastic. Well, you'll have to let me know how it goes. Really appreciate the time. Thanks for stopping by and we'll talk again soon. Thanks so much for having me, Fred. Great talking to you.
And welcome back. Back this week with us is Josh and Eric for Quick Takes. Got some interesting topics today. The first one I want to jump into, and I know we talk about the subject a lot, Bloomberg article came out earlier this week talking about the golden age of cushy text jobs is over. Josh, I know you have a lot of opinions on this. Did you have a chance to check out that article? Yeah, I did. I did. You want my thoughts? I would love your thoughts. Okay. Look, I mean, I think it's just, I think it's a stupid article. Like most articles are stupid. <laughs> I just think it's a dumb article. Like Mark Benioff sits with a cushy green pillow and on it is embroidered. It's like just like too much fluff. I wish people, first of all, wish everybody would write like Hemingway. So let's start there. <laughs> Right? Like, I just hate all the fluff, the emotional fluff. Like, who cares what pillow Mark have you has? But, have you gone to a recipe site these days? You've got to scroll down, like, five pages of, like, talking about my grandmother's farm and oh my, my dog God. and everything else. And then eventually, if you're lucky, you get to the recipe. Yeah, <laughs> if you don't have six pop-up videos playing uh, <laughs> the whole time, I had to. You know, to get through this one article I was reading about AI the other day, I had to suffer <clears throat> over and over and over again to turn off the redonkulous, um, you know, live life loud uh, Jack Daniels ad. It's like, how did I even get targeted for that? Anyway, more to the point, do I think the cushy a the, the age of cushy tech jobs is over? Look, when, when we say that they're cushy, we can't be meaning all of them, Right. I mean, there are cushy jobs in every industry. There are, most jobs aren't cushy at all. So I think it's stupid, one, because it implies that, you know, oh, yeah, you just sign up. And basically, they were referencing, you know, this guy wanted a job and he got a job selling software. And before you knew it, he was making $400,000. It's like, okay, but what's his resume? Like, let's, this guy wasn't some, you know, maybe he was a 25-year-old who's brand new to the industry. I doubt it because most salespeople aren't, worth their salary. I'd say 50% of them aren't. That's why it's got the highest turnover year over year and the lowest retention rate of all jobs out there in the entire country. So let's start so, there. Well, so I, I think, you know, for, for context of the article, when I read it, it was a guy who, who was a college athlete, and this has been the prototypical Salesforce hiring, mm -hmm. right? College athlete, you know, came out, went, you know, got a you know, thought, thought he was going to work in, in finance, didn't work it didn't work out didn't like the job you know heard about tech sales got hired basically as a BDR SDR you know one you know one promotion one promotion one promotion all of a sudden he's got a book of business at Salesforce and and we all know I mean they they have base salaries but if you're making 400 grand that's not a base salary right that's that's your commission right that's yeah. you know that's mostly commission and and the you know I think this ties into what we talked about last week with Salesforce starting to put, you know, their core products on the Amazon marketplace and letting people come in and just kind of self-serve and buy them. The idea that you can go in with, with little experience as a salesperson, get a job where you're selling something that is so exciting that you're almost beating the customers off with a stick, right? You know, people are coming in excited to buy this hot new I think product. You mean beating them back with a stick, Fred. Beating them <laughs> beating back. Them back with it. Okay. Beating them back with a stick. And uh all all of a sudden you 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 know you're making four hundred thousand, you know, almost without trying. And like those days are gone, right? Like the easy sales have dried up in technology, I think was the okay. underlying 
Sure, but even so, even so, like easy jobs always go away when the economy is suffering. And let's face it, the tech, you know, the the tech industry has suffered in the last twelve months. Maybe a little bit longer than that. Starting to some there's signs of hope right now in the last month or so, which is very good from a job standpoint, things like that. But we've got to remember, and they they do pointed out in the article that they went out and hired, I think twenty they said thirty thousand. It was about twenty seven thousand yeah. people that they hired in twenty twenty two, I think. Twenty one, twenty two. Yeah. It's like, yeah, like they overhired. And so yeah, you're gonna have like over firing. That's just kind of part and parcel. And it's not cushy tech jobs are over. The question is, is are, are sales jobs in the tech sector, are cushy sales jobs in the tech sector for charismatic college athletes with experience in finance over? Because, you know, there's a certain, um, like I've, I've hired college athletes, starting line, U of O linebackers and stuff. And these guys are generally extremely hard workers extremely yep. committed, extremely com- competitive. And people like that, guess what? They're going to win. If you're competitive, you're going to win probably more than you lose. You're definitely going to win over the people who aren't competitive. I don't think it's a, you know, if there's no cushy, you know, the end of the cushy admin role, I think is over. I think anybody <laughs> in there, but like, you know, for Salesforce, that's a yep. real thing. You know, oh yeah, just go get this cert and get six months experience somewhere. And now you're making 80K. I mean, that can happen, but as I know from, from talking to thousands of people, either in person or over, the, over, the, over my podcast, it's not the case. And highly competent people might have to wait a year, year and a half to actually even get a break in there. So I don't know if I buy it. I do think that all cushy jobs are less cushy when the economy is down, you know, and that, yeah. uh, you know, a rising tide floats all boats and a, a down tide is going to ground a few. That's all. It's not some no. big news. And it's not like it's over. It's like, oh, this is written in history. So it's just a big flashy uh, headline, I think. No, I, I hear you. And I, I think I I think the article is kind of silly, less for the, the green pillow, but more for <laughs> the fact that, that they characterize these jobs as cushy. I mean, I have, you know, in, in 10 years in the Salesforce ecosystem, I have worked closely with co-sold deals with probably a hundred Salesforce AEs. This is not hyperbole. And yeah, are are there the ones here and there that kind of fell backwards into something easy and and had a good year without really trying? Yeah, that's the exception. You know, tech sales is not easy. Enterprise sales is not easy. You're you're building consensus with you know five, six, seven, eight, ten, twelve buyers to write what is not an insignificant check, right? If you're bringing home 400K in Salesforce commissions, you're selling multiple seven and eight figure deals. And it's not cushy. You know, I I think for people on the outside where you say, oh, you know, you didn't have that much experience and you're an athlete, you came in in a couple of years, you're making 400 grand. Well, that must be easy. It's not easy. They're hardworking people. It's, it's, it's you know, is it fun? Yeah. Is it rewarding? Absolutely. Is it stressful? Absolutely. Does it require more than 40 hours a week? No. Way more. Not cushy. <laughs> Do I get overtime? Not, Not cushy. cushy. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, so I think, it's 400K. <laughs> I think the article would have been better had it first defined what a cushy job means. And for totally. me, if I were to define a cushy job, it means that you're getting overpaid for the amount of effort, energy, and efficiency, and, and work and stress involved, right? Generally meaning there's a lower barrier to entry and a very high payoff. And I, 
I don't see anything um, easy about acquiring a job at Salesforce. I think they absolutely made it easier for one year and they paid the price, right? But I don't yep. think it, it's not an easy company to get hired at. No, you're, you're spot on. Eric, what about all those cushy banking jobs? Yeah, there's a ton of them. Uh, any any I, thoughts? I was just going to say, I, I wish the bankers that I talked to, there's like not enough people to go around and uh, they're just having a hard time filling seats. So, you know, the, the cushy jobs, I think the challenge that the bankers have is they can't fill some of the jobs and they're not getting to the point where they're comfortable with that remote capability and still having that, you've got to be in the office management by touching as opposed to by performance. So if I can touch you while you're sitting in your seat, I know you're working. Well, in reality, that really isn't the case. So that's, that's a bigger challenge for the banking industry, especially the community banks that we predominantly work with. Yeah. I have a cushy you, job. You, can yeah, I, let me share, share this real quick. So I had a friend, our kids played sports together. I was on the board for the football and I was on the field all the time and he was one of the assistant coaches and he had a cushy, he had a cushy job. He did light bulb sales, right? So they sold light bulbs and replaced light bulbs and all the high rises in downtown Portland. How, how many people does it take to sell a light bulb? <laughs> Zero. <laughs> but <laughs> fortunately, he got paid to do that. And this guy, nice guy, he, he'd go to work. He was a ham and egger. That's your eight to five, five days a week. You're three or four weeks off, full benefits. He's probably making 100, 110K or 120K or whatever it was. And he hung out and watched baseball on the TV on his desk all day until he got a call. And he'd say, hey, I need this many lights. He'd be like, no problem. And he'd enter the order. That's a cushy job. Yeah. That's a real, that's a, for the amount of effort, that's a real cushy job. I don't know any Salesforce AEs that are still working at Salesforce that watch yeah baseball on a TV and just answer phone calls and book orders every time the phone rings. So I think, yeah. I think they missed the mark yeah. on this. Yeah. hundred percent. I'm curious, industry. Eric, like <laughs> in, in your conversations with banks, like how do you help bank executives, you know, get over the hump and, and embrace remote work? I think the, the, the key is identifying what the job needs and a lot of times it's the evolution of that position. You know, I'm talking with a bank right now that is absent a marketing person. And it's a small bank in a rural community that likely isn't going to get a rock star. Someone young that wants to move there probably isn't even married, single, post-college that kind of gets it. But understand, well, what, are, what is it that we need in this function? Whether it's, I've heard it from marketing, I've heard it from data analytics, I've heard it from credit and underwriting, you know, the the desired functions and the skills, and then saying, are you realistically going to get somebody in this community that has that skill set? Because if that person lives in your community in your small bank, you probably know them already. And if they're not working for you, there's a reason why. And if that person doesn't live in your community, <laughs> why are they not living here? What are the things that that demographic typically is going to be interested in? They're already settled someplace else. They've got skill sets that are marketable and they can take that outside of the banking industry and work in another industry that's going to value that, that skill set. And so then saying, okay, well, how do you understand what they are and are not doing? And then how can you manage that? Maybe they need to come in a couple times a month, just be there to be part of the culture and to meet people because that's, I think, an important thing because not everybody in the bank is going to be comfortable making relationships virtually. But at the end of the day, it's shifting that evaluation and performance metric 
expectation and and getting them in you know the conversation went okay after i posed a few questions but it's still very much uh mm-hmm. we want people to come here and we want somebody to move here to do the job that we've always done here because they need to be here to understand our culture and my take on the marketing side is if you want this person to convey your culture digitally and you can't even do that with your own employees how is that individual going to be expected to do it with your digital audience and so so eric if you had if you could just in one sentence say what hiring managers or executives who are making these decisions if you could just say one thing to them i mean you sort of just said it but in one sentence about how they hire what what is your like top piece Fred's of laughing cuz he knows i can't do it in one sentence <laughs> you're, you're, you're going to have to there we go i guess define the desired outcome of what that job is going to take to be successful and then i mean it sounds really rudimentary and then that was parenthesized in the sentence just so you know it's so still one sentence say, keep going um, <laughs> so define what the desired outcome of that job performance is going to be and then can you get somebody that has that skill set to move or to be physically present in your organization and and if that's not possible then it's a it's a virtual opportunity or a fractional opportunity go. i mean concept of yeah. a fractional CTO, a fractional CMO, a fractional CFO. You might have to go outside yeah. of the traditional hiring and say, we need a particular set of skill sets and maybe I'm not going to get that all from one person. So I get a little bit here, get a little bit here, get a little bit here, and you get someone that has that yeah. expertise that then gives themselves to a number of organizations, so you're all getting a little piece. The individual that fractionalizes themselves is going to make a lot more money because they can take their skill set replicated across multiple industries, but it gives you the ability to get access to that expertise at a much lower cost or investment and and that might ultimately a lower hour likely a higher hourly cost but a lower number of hours to perform high quality yeah. work and accomplish yeah. what you want. And and, yeah. and yeah. the outcome is go. what you need to focus on and the results. And I think that's a really difficult yeah. thing. I know I still did totally. And I know I know Josh. No, I know Josh, you and I have talked about this a lot. I don't know if I was here or on your podcast in in regards to Salesforce hiring. You know, it's harder and harder in small markets to find those niche skill sets. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think I think it's an important thing for employers in small markets to embrace is is the the relentless focus on the outcome and less focus on you know, is somebody physically here? Can I can I walk out of my office door and talk to them? You know, or is Slack good enough? Is Zoom good enough? Is coming into the office, you know, twice a quarter for for key meetings good enough? Yeah, I argue. Yeah, I'd yes. add, and I'd add Slack's a tool, right? Zoom's yeah. a tool. It's like saying, is this is this hammer good enough? Well, it really depends yeah. how you swing it, right? And so. The, the thing that people generally don't do is force themselves to, to generate a strong interest in something that they're not already excited or into. That's difficult. For instance, how do I manage remote em- employees effectively? How do I create a plan for that? And if I don't know, who does? And then if they set it up, how closely can I monitor it and manage it? And how do I make sure the metrics are in there that we're doing it? Are we doing surveys or like whatever it is, right? But when you get, a, when there are bad managers, and let's all agree, 
that there are bad managers out there, right? Yeah, 100%. Okay. And 50% of all managers are below average, right? <laughs> and that's how it works. <laughs> wow, that's brilliant. By definition. Are you a statistician? Yeah, I know. Yeah, math whiz I'm gonna, here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put that on a poster. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I passed algebra too. Check me out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so if we know that half of all managers are the worst half of all managers and that that's 50% of the managers out there, when you go remote, you will become a worse manager, right? It, it's, it's sort of like uh, Vanessa on the show, on, on, on my show talks about technology and she's quoting someone else, but you know, technology just amplifies whatever you've got going on. Or what I loved is, you know, here's a fun one. What, what Steve Martin used to say about cocaine. He's like, <laughs> if, you're an, if you're an a-hole, it just makes you more of an a-hole. <laughs> And so true, true that. Good, I yeah. I just watched Plane, Trains, and Automobiles last night. Great movie. Uh, for the first time in like five years, it was phenomenal. That's great. Great movie. We watched Killers of the Killers of the Killer of the Flower Moon. Killers oh, of the Flower Moon. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. I heard yeah. that was good. Yeah, it's good. It's good. It's. I don't think it's best picture of the year, but I, I thought it was really good. I think Oppenheimer's got it beat, but whatever. All right, I mean, now Oppenheimer's talk movies, guys. Come on, let's talk Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer is the only only one that I've seen of the of the the the, the big ones. So. Yeah, I want to see that Maestro. I haven't seen that one yet. Anyway, the yeah. point being that bad management is bad management. Bad management through remote is going to generally isolate people even more. Right? Mm-hmm. They're going to get less of the warm fuzzies, or they're just not going to get management. And I've seen it with myself. There's a learning curve to this stuff. Right? I've seen it where I'm not looking under the covers frequently enough. And because I'm not, because for five years, I haven't worked in an office with my entire team sitting there like in an open, in an open bullpen type environment where I can hear someone saying stupid crap to a client or a candidate, like just stupid, stupid stuff. You know, the best employees I had were made, right? They came in with the right stuff, college athlete stuff, right? So they came in with the right stuff. And then I can hear them saying stupid stuff and I can be like, oh, wait, hold on. You know, just, <laughs> don't just, say that. <laughs> just put them, put them on mute. Just say this, right? And then they'd say that and they'd look at me like, oh shit, that worked. It's like, of course it worked, dude. But I don't get that opportunity anymore. So there has to be an extreme amount of trust yep. and a lot of like, cart- you're not forced into management. You, you have to make it a priority instead of just no. the accidental manager when you're on site. Yeah. No, that, that's, a, that's a great point is it is a skill and, and trust is key. And I think that makes a perfect segue to the next topic around trust. And Eric, I'm going to let you introduce it because I don't think I'm going to do justice. But we wanted to dig in a little bit on Google's amazing, awesome, blew everybody away, Gemini Yeah, demo. so everybody's waiting for Google to uh, put a better player on the field as it relates to generative AI. And I don't think anybody, at least when it was originally released, has been super impressed with Bard. It's gotten better recently, but we've heard about Gemini coming and they delayed it. They had some big demos that they were going to be doing and Google decided, you know, based off of some language interpretation, inconsistencies, you know, the last time they did a demo, it basically screwed up what the Hubble telescope or something like that actually saw and, and, you know, market cap dropped a billion dollars and the world you know, was going to invert upon itself because Google failed in a demo. So they've been noticeably a little hesitant to re- release anything. Well, then they didn't do the, the demos. They didn't have the events. 
But then they dropped this video that everybody watched the video and they're like, holy crap. It was almost like the video that they dropped when uh, they did the stage demo of the call in the beauty shop and doing the live appointment or calling the Chinese restaurant and ordering the food. And it was like back and forth. And it was that level of awesomeness. I watched the video. I know a number of my colleagues did and we were we were impressed. And then just a few days later, TechCrunch broke that the uh, the demo was a stylized representation of what <laughs> Gemini was 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 going to be. And you can interpret, does that mean it was completely made up? Do, you know, if it was a stylized representation, what does that really mean? Is it it really does do all of those things, but it had to be polished a little bit or it was a, still a little buggy. And and my take is very much of disappointment because as we mentioned in the pre-show, I want Google to come out guns a-blazing. We've been a Google Workspace shop since we've opened our doors back in 07. I'm very much a fan of Google. We do a ton of stuff with it from SEO and advertising and analytics. So I want their stuff to be awesome. And the fact that they've let everybody else jump in front of them, Gemini was like, okay, you've got this immense universe of data that you've been collecting, you know, essentially helping the world index its information for 20 years, 18 years, whatever the case is. 20, 25. You clearly did not go to the Google homepage today. 25th anniversary yes, of Google. Yes, that's okay. So 25 years. So 94, whatever that is, 95, I don't know. But and, and the fact that that one is, should they have just had a little sub note, stylized interpretation or something along those lines? Should they even have done it? I mean, they felt like they had to because everybody's giving them pressure, but, you know, come out to say we're not quite ready yet. It's not done yet. Or at the end of the day, what makes them think that the world wouldn't have figured this out? And did anybody think of what the discussion would be? when the world discovered after the fact that it ended up being a stylized representation of Gemini. And I just, I would expect Google to be better than that. I don't know. It's my thought. Yeah. You know, I, I watched uh, maybe a 40 minute, it, it was that video, but then there was some commentary before and after, and this is, this is two days after it was released. So this information that it was quote unquote stylized was not yet out. I mean, if we look at it, I think the mistake is calling it a demo. Yeah, totally. Right? Instead of instead of calling it an ad. And what are they trying to do here? Well, they're trying to get people to buy more shares of Google and get excited because that's highly yeah. profitable. And if I'd be curious if all the people who bought and then it spikes a little bit, if they're now wanting to sell because it said stylized, I don't think they will. So it, like whatever, it worked for them. You know, yeah. Is there a little distrust? Well, for me, there's, there's no more distrust than like, oh, if I, you know, use this razor, I'm going to get that girl kind of thing. Like it's, it's a silly thing. It's an advertisement for them. Clearly there it's, it was of a high production value. Right. right? But was it a, was it a, to call it a demo was disingenuous, you know, and, and a mistake and uh, finding out, having invested all that time watching it and then like, I mean, I had this team meeting on Monday. I was like, oh my God, guys, did you see this? And I, I'm all excited about it and talking about how AI is changing the face of recruiting and the face of Salesforce and what that means and what, you know, what's the world going to be in five years? Like we can't even imagine it right now because of, you know, we just had, it's like we just, we just got beta, you know, video 
tapes for the first time. And like, we're all, you know, a year ago with AI. And it's like, we have no idea that in 10 years or 15 years later, or 20 years later, or whatever, I guess it's 20, 25 years later, that, you know, you're going to have all this computing power in your pocket and a, can- and a better camera than, you, than that $700 SLR that right. you bought, you know, five years ago. So like, we don't really know where it's going. It definitely got me pumped and it definitely is a little bit of a letdown. Should we let them off the hook, I guess, is the yeah. question. Yeah, let's, let's slap Google's wrist. The thing that stood out for me, <laughs> this is just a, this is kind of a random thought and I'll shut up for a bit. <laughs> the, the thing that kind of struck me is how they were using this example of creating a blog of like some fake dog's visit to a fake skyline of New York City. I don't know if you remember that part, but they show like, okay, Google, Gemini, whatever. Like, I, I'm a dog. This is the kind of dog I am. And I want to describe my visit to New York City. And it created images and it created a, a blog and all this stuff. And I think, okay, why do a lot of people blog? Some people just want to share their yep. thoughts. But so many of us blog, not just to share helpful things to other people or give an opinion or have insight or have a hobby. They do it for SEO, right? They do it to bump up in the rankings. So here you've got this massive platform, this Google platform, and it's like, here are all the tools so that you can sort of help leverage our weird algorithms to benefit you and use our products to to leverage that. It's like this feedback loop. Do you see what I mean? It's like, yeah, use use all our tools so that you can rank higher in our thing. And it's just like, it's all... Well, and, and, it's all just and like that, a big that plays back, off of the other pre-session loop. conversation slash rant that I had that you all told me to shut up and save it for the show. So here we go. Wind me up. The the other go. Go, discussion go, that Eric. I listened to this week was another podcast, the Marketing AI Show uh, with Paul Reitzer and Mike Put, and they made uh, a good point. And and I think Paul was given the example of doing a Google image search for a particular individual and the name escapes me, but the result that came up through Google for an image search was an AI generated representation of the individual that he was looking for. So, you know, if you wanted to get a a picture of Salvador Dali out of history, boom, all of a sudden now there's one, two, 20, 300, 500 AI generated images that people have posted out that the algorithm has determined are Salvador Dali images because they've read the content, the algorithms index, the information, the alt text, whatever the case is. And now those are populating image search, text search, video search, whatever it is. And at what point are we going to get to the point where all this information, whether it's the AI generated story of a dog that went to New York that is completely made up and false, ends up becoming one of the results in a Google search. And when are we going to get to the point where the search results are potentially untrustable because we don't know if it's real or if it's AI generated. And our but but here's yes. the thing though the the AI the AI search is is are, they're all or not the AI search the search results are already you know not trustable right just because something is human generated doesn't mean it's accurate what? you know remember what? that old remember that old Abraham Lincoln quote you know everything on the internet is true. Yeah. Abraham I Lincoln. Remember Abraham that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> train, so the the right. I mean, the the internet is like anything that is that is crowdsourced. There's going to be a level of human evaluation about whether or not you know what you're looking at is accurate. I I think 
Yeah, and I get your point, right? Like, I look for a picture of Salvador Dali. I want an actual picture of Salvador Dali. I don't want some AI-generated picture of him, although I bet that was probably looks pretty cool. I want, you know, actually him. But I I do think, like, in in short order, Google and and others are going to come up with a way, you know, to put into their search algorithm a way to determine and, and signal this is, you know, a genuine image this is AI generated, you know, based on image yeah. metadata and analysis like that's that's coming. And then it's going to be an arms race, right? The AI is going to get better. The algorithm is to determine if it's AI is going to get better and, and so on and so forth. I'm I'm not as concerned about that. And I got to be honest with you, going back to your first point, you know, last week I was in Napa in, in Sacramento all week. I, I had a client lunch on Friday and kind of a rush to the airport and I had a, a connection to make in Phoenix, and it was kind of tight, and I was a little hungry. And I'm not usually a fast food guy, but I remember watching a commercial for Wendy's a couple of days earlier, and I looked at that, you know, Dave's Biggie, I don't know what they call the sandwiches. I was like, oh, that looks delicious. Like, it's big and plump, and it's steaming, and, you know, the the, the beef looks all juicy, and the cheese is melting out the side. And I, I put an, an order in on the app as I was landing in Phoenix, and I go to Wendy's and I pick up my burger in, in the sack and I unwrap it. And do you think it resembled the hamburger from the commercial in any yeah. way, shape or form? Yeah. Well, shocking, so, right? Shocking. shocking. So I'm not sure why you're surprised that the Gemini, you know, experience is any different than the commercial reel, right? And this is what like, we talked about before. <laughs> like, yeah, it's like, it, it's, yeah, the, the Gemini reel being the commercial thing. And I'll tell you too, it's just, it's like you can just put in must be, you know, whatever, original photos only. Like, I'm sure you can prompt it right. to verify. It's like, so when you ran that search, did you then run a search that just said original photographs only or period photographs or photographs between 1930 and 1960, right? Like things like that, that you, you yep. can do, you know, bully, just basic Boolean sure, stuff. Sure, sure. And yeah. those are all super valid points. So I, I... Don't argue with any of that, but it's, but I, I, I hear what you're saying. Like it, it is a bit of a sucker punch, right? Like I get the idea of expecting more from certain yeah. brands, you know, and I, and I'm, I'm as disappointed or maybe not disappointed, but I'm as shocked, I think, as anybody that after, you know, really being the leader behind the scenes in AI for at least 20 of its 25 years, that Google seems to be stuck in the starting blocks, right? You know, as much as I'm, I try not to be an open AI fanboy, you know, or even anthropic, like they are eating their lunch commercially right now. And, and it's, it's shocking. I, it, it really, you know, and it's a problem that Google has to solve. Google was definitely trying to solve the problem by having this flashy debut. I, I don't think anybody, like at the end of the day, any serious investor before they went and committed some money, went and actually tried out Gemini and said, you know what? This is not quite what I saw on the demo reel, right? Like just like just like in Salesforce, right? You, you know, the the whether it's a solution engineer or somebody at, at the SI you're working with, you know, they've put together a great demo, but you're gonna go check out for yourself if that's exactly what you're getting out of the box or not. I think the same thing with exactly. Google, right? Like no well, nobody like went car. and yeah, no, nobody went and and and, and bought ten thousand shares of Google based on the demo video, but exactly. it is it is shocking to me that they're not doing better. Yeah. 
Like I want, I'm with you, Eric. I want Google to do better, not necessarily morally better by not putting out a demo video, but I just want their results to be better. I want the product yeah. to be better. And maybe that's at the, well, at I, the heart of the reason why I got so bummed out about this as I take a personal yeah. introspection at my passion and my feelings is, you know, at the end of the day, I just, I, uh, I was expecting it to, wow, be super cool. And uh, it was, but it, it was that, it was that fake Wendy's burger. And believe me, I've seen <laughs> the, the Baconator with the Look. pretzel bun looks amazing. Yep. So uh, I'm going to be leery if I order that now. I'll be thinking of you. When, when it's when it's smashed at the bottom of a bag at the Phoenix airport at 8.30 on a Friday yeah. evening, it's it's not yeah, as phenomenal. How still did tasty, it, though. But, but how did it taste? I was going to say, how did it yeah, taste? Still right. tasty. Still go. tasty. Yeah. I mean, look, the job. If you're, you're going to go buy a car, right? So I'm on the Tesla. I'm on the Cybertruck list, and I, I don't think I'm going to get mine until 2025, probably. You know, I'm like a quarter a quarter in. You know, it's, when, it's, when you get it, can I come over with a sledgehammer? <laughs> yeah, sure. <buddy. laughs> come on over <laughs> You can do that. Come over with a sledgehammer and a checkbook. Um, and, and that's just it, right? It's like, get the production model out. Let's get the people that we trust to do reviews of things and watch it. If I'm going to pick up a car or, or, or drum, uh, drop some serious coin on a car, and I, I don't even get to drive the thing first, I'm going to watch a bunch of yep. videos. And I'm going to, I'm not just going to be like, what are the 10 most awesome things about this? I want to see like real world, like what are the worst things about it? Where were you disappointed? and do a little bit of research. You know, every time I see a car ad, and aren't they all the same, right? I mean, it's someone, you know, a car's in the desert doing donuts, and it's like, wait a second. <laughs> it, or it's like coming around the corner and skidding. It's like, I thought this thing was all-wheel drive. Why is it skidding, <laughs> you know? It's like, oh yeah, they're on sand because it looks cool and it kicks up dust and stuff. But really, you know, it's a Honda Accord. So like, let's, let's calm down here. Let's be so, like, if you're not doing, if you're not going and watching Doug Demuro or someone else review a, a, a high ticket item that you're interested in purchasing sight unseen, then there you go. And here's another thing. If it was that awesome, right? Wouldn't they have shared like the date that it's going to be actually released? And maybe I missed that. Like this is available to the public starting when, like when, right? I, th I think, I think now or this week, maybe. I mean, I looked. I think we, we you know, we, I looked a couple of days ago. It wasn't up. So when I think about all the hype that you get with like a MacBook, right? All the hype of the new phone or whatever. It's like, yeah, I don't know that I'm going to be dancing like that every time I listen to music, right? And I, I don't know that I'm going to be like, what, you know, like they just speed every, they speed everything up for commercials. Demos are. A little I've, bit I've more seen, real. I've seen you, bro. You're going to be dancing every time with the with the iPod. In. Like, like <laughs> I'm going to do the sneaky yeah. dance like this, right? <laughs> so you know, just like buyer beware, and that's for all things, including free things. Buyer beware, because you got to remember if you're not the if you're not the if you're not paying for it, then you're the product. Oh, absolutely, right? totally, yep. totally. I, I'd like to pivot, Eric, into another thing you shared uh, before the show, the the recent article interview in Financial Brand with Brett King, just talking about how banks need to embrace radical change, you know, especially now when, when things are a little more turbulent. And, and one of the things he talked about was, you know, smart predictive analytics, AI, et cetera. But I'd love to get your take on the article. You know, do, do you think he... 
made some good points, got it right, or or are you a little bit of a of a different opinion on it? So I'm 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 a big fan of Brett King. I know he is always out there ahead of the curve. Has made some predictions in Bank 2.0 and 3.0 and some of his other books that hadn't materialized yet, but. I think a a portion of what he talks about is always going to trickle down back into reality. And not every bank is going to have to embrace radical evolution because there are some that are just still going to live in their sleepy little towns and they'll be able to get by. But with everything changing so fast, and it kind of goes back to the first part of the conversation of finding the right talent to be able to do these sorts of things, is leveraging the analytics that are available. And that's going to be for a lot of institutions, getting their core providers that are the custodians and the controllers of all this info outside of its ecosystem into some platforms that are going to give it the ability to be able to to analyze it and to look at it. And there's there's not a lot of bankers that I have talked to that are confident that their information can be exported. And some banks that I know of have gone to embracing the data lake concept where we're going to take everything out of our Pfizer, Jack Henry, CSI, FIS, whatever, and we're going to bring in information from our CRM, Salesforce, HubSpot, you know, SharpSpring, you know, whoever, and we're going to take our financial advisor data and we're going to take our ATM data and online banking data and we're going to put that in our own SQL database and we're going to analyze it ourselves. But that takes a lot of technical expertise and some money and commitment, some planning. So, But I think that's going to be what it's going to take in order to be able to stay up and to be able to provide the level of service that's needed. And so this article just talks about a number of different things and being able to either understand and replicate or provide alternatives to some of these fintech challenger apps or partner with them to be able to use them and be okay that, you know what, we're not going to do all of that ourselves, but is it okay for our customers to use that app and we're going to provide services and then we just give access to it? And, you know, it talks about payments, talks about, you know, transparency of information and where stuff is and isn't going. I still don't have a real warm fuzzy. And there was another article that came out that talked about the number of employees that are using AI without senior management approval or awareness. And yeah, I think I think the I think the answer is all, all of them. them. Yeah, I mean, I did a marketing <laughs> one of the marketing directors who shall remain nameless said, you know, I grab my laptop, I go out to the parking lot and sit in my car, and I pick up the Wi-Fi from the uh, the Starbucks or the the hotel or whatever's next to him, and that's how she goes in, and then she has to email or text message the information to her to be able to then be able to use it, and so you know. Just all of these different evolutionary things that are taking place, is, is the banking industry able to, to stay on top of it and to be able to embrace it? And, and even from just a basic blocking and tackling, I was on a call just before this with, with a bank, and they want to measure conversion, which is I've clicked on an ad, I go to your website, I read about your awesome checking, and I want to be able to open an account online. And the bank just simply wants to be able to have that online account opening funnel back into the advertising conversion funnel. And the platform that's provided yep. by the core provider doesn't allow for analytics to be inserted inside of it. And there's no way to be able to tie A and B back together again. I mean, this is 2023, almost 2024. And there are platforms that banks are using that are provided by some of these big companies that don't even provide the basics, conversion tracking and 
giving a bank a snowball's chance to calculate ROI. And so you've got these big banks that are doing it really, really well, that are doing their own technology and building all this stuff. And the community banks, which came to the rescue for most small businesses in the country when PPP was a thing, how do they stand to remain competitive? And I think those are the things that Brett was talking about because a vast majority of the readers of the financial brand are these smaller community banks, I think, and the credit unions, financial services providers that want to be inspired to do what they can to remain competitive and viable and in existence for years to come. So those were, those were my thoughts. What are, what are your thoughts? Can, can I, can I, can I be the dumb guy in the room for a second? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. All right. For the whole hour. <laughs> um, <laughs> what percentage of banking occurs at the level of smaller community banks? Small percentage. Compared yeah. to that, like less than 10%? I, mean, I don't know the numbers, but when you look at the amount of dollars on deposit at the big bank level versus small bank, it's way, way skewed. Okay. Fair enough. But what, all okay, right. But, do you have a sense of, again, this, I'm not, this is like, I don't know the answers and I'm not trying to trip you up. I'm just trying yep. to understand the, the impact. I'm trying to understand the impact to the general economy, smaller community banks, not being able to have the, the innovation that, that, you know, larger banks can afford. And so what about for, you know, the clients that they serve, that average client that they serve, whatever the firemen, the you know, yep. the teacher that's getting their, their auto loan uh, through them and runs their regular bank, things like that. And again, we live in a much more mobile world now than, than we used to even 15 years ago with the advent of remote, remote work. So people, you know, uh, Fred, Fred, do you bank at a community bank? I mean, you're in Omaha, then you're in Chicago, then you're in Jupiter, then you're in Tampa, then you're in Napa, then you're in San Diego. Am I getting most of these minus Jupiter? You're getting most of them right. I mean, right. I, I, I don't. I, I, and, and I don't drink my own Kool-Aid on this. But I, I'll take a stab at answering, and Eric's going to have a much better answer than me. But from a, a consumer perspective, one of the big values of community banks and credit unions is that they tend to and can operate kind of outside of the, the square peg approval process, whether it be for for loans, for accounts, for doing business. And a lot of people that would not otherwise get approved for a car loan or a mortgage or a, a personal loan or a small business loan can go and have conversations with people, you know, actual conversations in a lot of you know, times, or, or even just you know, go through programs to get approved where some of the larger institutions really just look at you know FICO or one of the other credit models. And if you don't fit in their approval box, okay. you don't have a lot of options. This and reminds it's me of even, college applications. Hold on. Yeah. And it's even more pronounced on the business side. Like if you're a giant corporation, you can go negotiate with the, the super big banks, right? They're, they want, you know, they want the business. If you're a mom and pop or if you're even, you know, a mid-sized company. And, and you want access to capital, you know, the big boys are not going to not going to negotiate with you. But you can go to a community bank, a regional bank, you know, in some cases, credit unions that do commercial business and get much better terms. And so even though like if you look at deposits, or even look at transaction volume, it's not the lion's share. It is critical. Like we would we would miss very quickly community banks and credit unions if they were not 
part of the financial system. Yeah, that, that's super helpful for me. And while you were speaking, it it was like the perfect analogy is colleges, right? When I applied to colleges, which was back in 1990, 89, 90s, when I was, I guess I was applying in 89, you know, the large schools like, you know, Santa Cruz and UC Boulder, I mean, it was like, here's your test score, here's your grades, you made it or you didn't, right? Whereas the private schools were like, well, we're actually going to really take time and read your essay. And I know colleges are trying to do, larger universities are trying to do that, more of that, trying to adopt private school entry uh, requirements more closely, but they can't do it. So they have to have a cer certain cutoff, right? That's based mm -hmm. on a couple of, couple of numbers and you land on the chart or you don't. So it sounds real similar. And yeah, so someone who couldn't get into Berkeley might be able to get into Pepperdine because the fact that there were whatever, two sport varsity athlete and volunteered over here and did this, that, and the other thing like makes sense. Now, I don't want to comment too much on the college application world right now because I'm not an expert in it, but it, it sounds it sounds a little bit like that to me. Like when people don't have as good a chance at one spot, they might have a better chance with a smaller community bank. So that just helps me because I'm banking dumb, dumb. I think, I think yeah, not, not at all. I mean, that, that's the big one for me, Eric. I know you've got more more thoughts on this too. Well, it, it, it also relates to some of the other businesses and, and, you know, if we go back to PPP or just general, you know, trust and faith in bending the rules a little bit and supporting an organization, a business, or even an individual that wouldn't be able to get that same level of support at a bigger bank. A lot of it trickles down to minority, women-owned, rural. So, you know, not a lot of big banks, you know, they're pulling out of the rural areas. So, you know, population-wise, density-wise, still a vast majority of banking is done and will continue to be done by the large banks. It's just the economies of scale that's there. But there is that really important sector in the world, in our country, that they have to be served by that community bank. And it's seeing that gap get driven just because I live in a rural area. I might still want to have all the tech bells and whistles and cool things. So now all of a sudden, you know, do I have to go someplace where I'm banking with a larger institution that doesn't have a physical presence? So I don't have that convenience of going in with a cash deposit or whatever the case may be, or personal service to get the other stuff that I need. And, and, th and that's where Brett's article is just saying community banks and trickle-down economics and Moore's Law and the diminishing cost of technology is going to make that possible because things are becoming less expensive. But being able to embrace that culturally, understand how you can implement it, do you have the right employees that are able to support it? It's, it's just really presented a lot of food for thought, like, okay, are we ready for this, bankers, in 2024? Or is it, nope, get in your car and go out in the parking lot to get on ChatGPT and, uh, and yeah, Eric, what, did, what did you think about the part in the article where they talked about countries in Latin America are, are actually ahead of the curve from America, from the United States because of regulation? I think regulation plays into it, certainly, because we've got a lot of things that we're required to do that other countries don't. I think there's, if you look at Europe and Latin America, they've been ahead of us in payment technology. You know, I've got friends through the WSI network because we're a global. I talk to friends that are, you know, they laugh when they hear about, you know, our our desire to have, you know, the FedNow platform to be able to support open payments across. They're like, I can send my buddy 
money in Italy from the UK, like I've been able to do that for like 10 years. I don't know where the rocket science is in that. <laughs> and, you know, so there's just a lot and, you know, their environment probably has made it easy, but, you know, stored value and chip cards, pin transactions versus signature based transactions. All of those things are elements that I know Brett's talked about because he does a lot in China and Asia and uh, in Europe. And he's, he's written about that a number of times about just how antiquated some of those capabilities are. And he touched on payments and the infrastructure in the United States of getting money from A to B. So, but regulations are only getting worse. They're not getting better. So that's another. And, and when well, you say WSI and, network, and I, are you referring to the marketing yeah, group? Yeah, that's what I'm part of. Okay. So our, our agency has been WSI partner since 07. Yeah, man, they've, they've, uh, they have, so I used to run um, the creative group and, and Robert have technology for Portland and Southern Washington. And I, I watched in 10 years, WSI just come in and scoop up all my clients, like all of them. They just came right in. And I, you know, I think people got to retire and had a nice life because they did. But <laughs> I was like, is that, is that what he's talking about? <laughs> I was say, and, and to build on what you're saying, Eric, like I think, you know, regulation Part of what I see my role, and I'm assuming you do as well, is helping bankers that tend to, to be relatively conservative out of the box, you know, especially the folks that sit in, in compliance and, and regulatory, you know, understand where the lines are and understand the right ways to, you know, to implement some of this technology and navigate through what are always increasing and complicated overlapping yep. regulations. When you think of you know, you know, three, four, five federal agencies plus state, plus even, you know, you've got to comply with with even non-financial regulations like, you know, the California Privacy Act and, and things like that. I mean, yep. There's a lot of things that banks have to take into account. And, and even the people that are professionals inside the bank, they don't necessarily have that broader view of what others are doing, what others industries are doing, you know, how they could potentially stay okay within the rule book, but still like keep up with the pace of what customers are expecting. Because guess what? You know, customers want to be able to send money easily to other places too, right? Like that's the customer expectation. And and you shouldn't have to be at a big bank to do right. it for sure. Right. Well, this has been phenomenal as always, gentlemen. Just uh, to, to recap here, we're in the middle of December. We haven't talked about it yet, but I'm hoping we'll get one more uh, quick takes in for our final episode of the year. But uh, whether we do or don't, what are your big plans for the holidays? All right. Well, I'll go first. And uh, we might want to relabel this long takes. Possible, <laughs> long takes with bald guys. It's possible that we... Yeah. 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 Bald, bald facial yeah, hair men. Yeah, there you go. Um, video yeah, video cast coming soon so you know what the heck we're talking about. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, that'll be good. That'll be good. None of us will have to comb our hair. <laughs> That's just, nice. just our facial yeah. hair. Yeah, a yeah. Weird I've got a mustache coming in today. Uh, I'm excited about it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I love, I love that beard, man. Yeah. It's awesome. So we've got, we've got, we've got five kids uh, between Casey and I, and three of them are coming for Christmas. We just had uh, one of them here over Thanksgiving, and and another one uh, closer to the beginning of the summer. He's, little, you know, he's in his late twenties already, so it's a little bit harder to get everybody all at once. But so we've got Charlie and Oliver, my two sons. They're coming on Wednesday. They'll be here for a week. And then Naya's coming on uh, that Sunday, and she'll be here for a week. And then um, my father and uh, uh, stepmom, they're going to come down just for Christmas Day. And uh, yeah, we just 
going to go out on the boat a couple times and eat some good food and enjoy some nice weather. Well, that my, sounds phenomenal. My hope is to get on the lake, but it's not going to be on a boat. I've got uh, the studded tires ready to go <laughs> on my fat bike, but we've gotten a, a warm patch of weather, and uh, now we've just got some open water with ice shifting and loading up on people's shores based off of which direction the wind is blowing. So I hope all of my Houghton Lake friends have got their stuff pushed back far enough because Mother Nature can be uh, a little bit of an unrelenting person. Um, I was going to use the B word, but I want to keep it friendly. So she's just not very no, empathetic. She just I dug think. her own thing. If you get <laughs> yeah. in my way, then screw you. You know. Yeah. So yeah. so so do you you go out on the lake? I, I say I'm going to say just. just, but like just to ride a bike, or are you like biking out to like a, an ice house and like no fishing no or something? the fishermen look at me like I'm nuts, and I look at the fishermen like they're nuts, and we just have this we agree to disagree. So, yeah, <laughs> I uh, I. I enjoy fat biking in the winter and uh, getting out. And usually before we get a ton of snow and the snowmobiles take over, we usually get a really nice, good hard pack. And it makes it really enjoyable to get out there and uh, spend some time on the lake. So as far as Christmases go, uh, parental units are in Florida. So they'll be sending pictures. We'll probably do a Zoom Christmas opening with them, with all the stuff we're sending them from Amazon. Nice. And just a couple of uh, little things here and there. And uh, we're getting the virtual team to come in in person for a dinner in Grand Rapids, Michigan, one evening. And we'll physically be present, everybody. And we'll get the annual uh, team Ussy, which is no longer called a selfie, thanks to Ted Lasso. Um, but we'll get that picture and uh, it'll be good to see everyone, hopefully get a little downtime. What about you, Fred? No, that sounds phenomenal. I was going to say, I, I like fat biking year-round, but I just have a hybrid. So, But since I'm fat, it's uh, it's easy to easy to enjoy that year-round. No, I was going to say, uh, for me, killing me, me I think... Cue the rim shot. But up bump. I, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm happily done with travel. We're, we're recording this on the 12th. It drops on the 14th. I will not be in New York for World Tour on the 14th. I expect to be home the rest of the year, which is nice. Low-key Christmas, no big plans. I do have, I'm um, hosting a, a small get-together, you know, friends and, and whatnot this Saturday, which is fantastic. And then next week, I'm the, the Slack community group leader here in Omaha, and I'm hosting a Slack holiday party next Tuesday, so a week from today. So if you're in Omaha or near Omaha, feel free to come out. But uh, is that, other than is that, that a Christmas not, party not a on Slack hoping. or it's a Christmas party for Slack in person? Because I'm just curious. It is. It is for it is for Slack, and 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 I'm co-hosting it with with a couple of the Salesforce groups around here. So if you're Slacky or Salesforcey, it's okay. in person. I just want to make sure uh, at uh, Modus at Modus Coworking in Omaha. No, but it's not it's not on Slack. I it's hard. It's hard to drink over well, I was Slack. I just going to so. say, maybe that was a plug-in that I missed or something. I don't know. <laughs> that is not an app that is on the <laughs> App Store yet. So, no. It'll be it'll be cool. It'll be low-key. But, gentlemen, great as always. And uh, look forward to chatting next Excellent. time. Absolutely, Thanks, guys. guys. Have a great week. And thanks you for too. listening, everyone. Well, everyone, we hope you enjoyed Episode 18 of Banking on Disruption. Don't forget, you can find show notes and a full transcript of the show on our website, bankingondisruption.com. New episodes drop every other Thursday, so we'll see you in two weeks. And in the meantime, 
Don't forget to follow us on LinkedIn and Instagram at at Baking on Disruption. Until next time, this is Fred Cadena wishing you success in your digital pursuits. Thank you.